Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. I have the pleasure to welcome Dan to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. I just had a funny journey here, which I just mentioned to you briefly, where I <laughs> found myself in the middle of a four-lane motorway <laughs> because I was uh, taking the wrong route on Google Maps on foot. So I'm now fine now because I have coffee. I'm here. Nice. So nice. It's all good. It's good to see you ERL as well. Mm-hmm. So did you, ma- you you managed to come to the studio with all the... <laughs> I'm here in one piece, <laughs> despite the best efforts of transport planners. Amazing. How was your summer? It was good, given the situation, I guess, of the pandemic. But um, yeah, we we're, we're in Sweden, of course, and in Stockholm. And so we were mainly at home in Stockholm. But that was very nice just to be around yeah. home. I live in the south of Stockholm, in Hueda, which is a kind of garden city development uh, originally so it's kind of um it's nice and i'm still new to sweden i think you know i've been here about two and a half years or so so I, but i still feel like a tourist a bit so <laughs> so it's kind of like being on holiday when you're on holiday yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you enjoy the summer you recharge and you yes it feels already like a long time ago because yeah, right. like autumn is um autumn drops like a curtain yeah, yeah you know suddenly the leaves turn yeah. suddenly the temperature drops a bit Awesome. So Dan, tell, tell us about you. How would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us about your passion. Yeah, well, I am British, as you, may, you can tell from the accent, but I um, have moved around a lot. So I've lived and worked in Australia, Italy, Finland, Sweden now. I was born in Zurich, actually, but um, just because my parents were living there, but um, grew up in Britain, really. So but as you can probably tell, I'm already sort of a mixture of different places. And that's eventually what my work became really as well, to do with places, cities in particular. So I'm an urbanist, um, a designer. That's how I describe myself professionally. Originally an interaction designer or service designer, so working with digital stuff in the early days of the internet. And um, But I'd done a master's degree in urban sociology before that. So I always had this kind of interest in cities and the way that they work. Not so much... From an architectural point of view, originally, it was more to do with almost everything between the buildings, mm-hmm. um, which I then later discovered was, you know, more really about urbanism in a sense. Yeah. So, yeah, that's me. I said, I started off working more on the internet, and then I kind of rekindled my interest in cities and buildings and spaces and things um, in the sort of mid 2000s after I was working at the BBC. And that's when I realized actually all of this stuff around tech and internet, mm. the way that people use things, all of the things you learn as an interaction designer, a very real focus on user centered design and user research and understanding mm. and then deriving products and things from that. That maybe now is useful in cities and buildings and infrastructure and questions like this as well. So it was kind of luck that yeah. I ended up 
or timing <laughs> or you know good fortune whatever yeah and tell us more like you moved from one city to another city work in different cities was it not like annoying that you need to move settle build the friendships and then you're moving uh well it was always a choice so i'm very lucky in that sense i'm not like um i guess most of the people that have to move cities in the world where they're you know doing it because it's um forced upon them so for me i'm privileged in that it was a choice to do that so of course it's annoying to register with the tax agency and <laughs> fit, you know find a house and fill in all the paperwork and yeah. open, figure out how to open a bank account and <laughs> why does the health service work like this you know, in all of these countries that's just a hassle and i'm probably an expert now in kind of understanding yeah, yeah. like how, how good countries are at that or not but um as i said it's always been a choice to move so i've It's always been a motive force, you know, mm. saying, let's go and live in Australia. And then something came up in Finland through a project that I was working on. And so, okay, yeah. it's time to move back to Europe. And then something comes up in Italy. And then that looks really interesting. <laughs> that would be a great place to live. And, you know, and from my wife, my partner and I, my family, you know, that was, there was kind of always a joint decision. Mm. But there's definitely something in both her, my wife, Celia, who's Australian, and me that is... Uh, clearly has now got comfortable with the idea that you can move exactly yeah so there is no more uh, comfort zone no well i mean you it's a good question there's definitely um it's a balance because you know mm. if you just move all the time it would be crazy and unnecessary true, as true. well and also you know you to do the work that i do you have to stick around a bit and like dig into a place and understand yeah. it you know when i moved to sweden I have to understand it, you know, I read a lot and I talk a lot and I walk around a lot and, mm. um, you know, use all the tricks of a designer to understand the place. Um, yeah. And so it's very different living and working in a place and trying to make your life and work about that place as compared to, say, when you're a consultant on a project. As you'll know, you you know, you can basically, I remember working at Arab in Australia on mm. a project in um I guess United Arab Emirates, and I'd never been to United Arab Emirates, you know, and so you can, but you can work on that project, sort of, yeah, for six months, and it's all just shuffling PDFs around, you know, <laughs> and, and Dropbox, and yeah. that's as close as I got to Dubai, mm. um, or Mazda, as it was actually that project. So it was, uh, yeah, there's clearly a problem with that kind of work and that kind of living if it's just surfaces. Mm. So I like to go deep, um, but then at the same time, clearly at some point, it's. I'm also comfortable in saying, okay, I've done some stuff here now. I've made some kind of difference, hopefully useful. And then uh, let's see. Let's see what happens next. Yeah. And you moved to Sweden because now you're working with? Yeah, I work at Vinova. Um, most of the time, about 80% of my time, I'm at Vinova. And that's the Swedish government's innovation agency. Um, and that's in, they're an interesting thing. Not every government has an innovation agency, you know. So they we, we coordinate all the research and innovation uh, in Sweden. Essentially, that's our job to look after it, make sure it's fit for fit for purpose. We do that through funding projects and um, setting up centers, and then uh, understanding innovation policy and all mm. of those kinds of things. But then my work has been really about. Um, Alongside that, how do we need to change the way that we do innovation in Sweden? What kind of techniques or methods are we using? And um, as you know, I think you know we've I've really pushed into this very place-based approach and using my background basically, mm. and saying that that can also be a site of innovation and the kind of innovation we can do that is much more participative and maybe um, 
collaborative and question-based, not, not assuming that there's a technology that will just solve this problem, but understanding the context and then figuring out what the answer might yeah. be after you figured out what the question is. So going that way around, mm. it's almost like a traditional design-led approach to it, but in the context of innovation. So that's what I do most of the time. And then uh, one day a week, I now work at Oslo School of Architecture wow. Design. Aho is a professor there, and um, we're working there on similar things, really, but more from the kind of education side. We're building up a master's level, level course in strategic design. Oh, cool. It's interesting to link the academia with the, with the, mm. with the real life, no? I find it super useful and um, doesn't always work. It's sometimes hard, you know, because <laughs> sometimes academia is distanced on purpose. Mm, yeah. And for a good reason. And sometimes it's distanced for a bad reason. Mm. Um, but I find that I have a few things that force me to think about and reflect on my practice and what I'm doing in the, mm. in the rest of my work, if you like, because the rest of my work is very hands-on and, you know, workshops and drawings and meetings yeah. and you know, sort of site visits and like like any designer in a sense um but academia forces me to sit down and think okay what the hell am i doing here because i've yeah. got to explain it to someone like, else where's the methodology that you're using as well exactly and what does it mean so that's the that's the kind of practice of that strategic design is um emerged you know let's say maybe 10 15 years ago in the way that i frame it at least based around the work I was doing in Helsinki at the time, Citra, kind of Finnish, almost equivalent of Vinova to some extent, mm. working with uh, a few architects, colleagues there, Marco Steinberg, Brian Boyer, and Justin Cook, and we ran something called Helsinki Design Lab, and we were really using our background in architecture and design, but saying, what if you pointed these techniques at these grand challenges of our time, like mm. climate or social justice, um, the way we make decisions, basically, governance, you know, how, how are we organized in order to address these challenges? Yeah. So that's quite a, it's in a way, it's almost exactly the same processes as designing a building or a website or a car. But the question isn't car or building, it's climate okay. <laughs> or, or food, you know, like, or education, you know, something at that scale. And then within that, you're then understanding, okay, what, what's the current context? What's the historical reasons for why this is? You know, where can we start making entry points or acupunctures into that system? How do we understand the way the whole thing yeah. goes together? Just as, an, you know, a good architect is in the middle of all of these forces that make a building and mm. or a space. And they're understanding what, you know, what my colleague Marco called the architecture of the problem. Like, how does this all fit together? What's mm. connected to what? Why does that do that when you connect it to this? And why doesn't it do this? What are the assumptions underneath that? What if we reorganize it like this? So those kinds of practices we found incredibly useful to run effectively design studio processes, but around questions of education in Finland. Yeah. So so that's, you know, long story short, that's what I'm doing now at Vinova. And then in, on the education side, we're then thinking, well, um, where does that fit into a design curriculum? You know, is it kind of, is strategic design a, a something that you do after you've done your kind of core practice of, architecture or industrial design or interaction design or whatever it might be. And you now need to work in a more collaborative and participative way upstream, if you like. Mm -hmm. So you're actually working on the brief quite often. You're working with the client, uh, if you like, using the commercial language or the client, if it's also a public sector side. And again, the question is um, not, uh, can you design me a library and it's got to be, you know, 40,000 square meters and here's the budget envelope. And, yeah. But it's actually, uh, what is a library? <laughs> Mm. And then from within that much richer question, you can then find, okay, there's probably a building in there somewhere, right? But there's also loads of other stuff, organizations, mm. digital stuff, 
uh, the idea of a library itself might not be one building, it could be 10 buildings and you know, smaller buildings in neighborhoods. Like those are all possible ways of reframing that, yeah. that question. But often, as you know, you don't, you don't get that. You get the kind of brief saying, no, it's got to be one building, 40,000 square meters, it's got to go here. Is that, well, why? Exactly. You know, and that, that ability to ask why, hopefully not in an annoying way, like I just did, <laughs> but actually in a useful way, <laughs> working with the original, what I call stage minus one, really, you know, before it becomes stage zero or even stage one, it's like, what is the thing? And that is, as you know, when you're working on a project here, like at stage five, if it's, you know, sort of architecture stages, for instance, then you'll hit something and go, well, if only we, the, this had been, hadn't been framed this way in the brief, you know, if only we could unlock this, but you can't do that by that point because you're swimming back upstream to a decision sometimes made, you know, years in advance. And everything's kind of already set in stone and it becomes that kind of waterfall process of design. Mm. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of reframing of that practice and therefore um, then having to teach that forces you to write it down, think about it, articulate it, think huh. of that as a series of methods and tools, and uh, plays, if you like, like a playbook. And um, that's really powerful. I mean, writing also does that. That's the other thing I do a lot of as well is write about the work. And partly that's to figure out what the hell's going on there and be, be able to kind of articulate it and frame it. Mm. Partly that's also, as we're teaching, is to share the ideas and yeah. practices so others can pick it up and run with it and critique it or adapt it, adopt it and then adapt it. You know, and then... That's um, I find then their reactions profoundly useful because then I can I can fold that back into my learning and yeah. so on. Do, do you see or what do you think about the new generation now you're teaching? Do you see they are like super smart compared to how your generation was? It's not a competition, Mister. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, it's not a question. I think smart so much as maybe more aware. Okay, about the climate or in general, about yeah. everything? Yeah, about challenges and about this, maybe the systemic nature of those challenges. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think when I was a student, I can't think uh, climate came up much. You know, this, was, this would have been the late 80s, early 90s. Where, where did you study? In which university? I studied um, at University of Hertfordshire, North London, and then Manchester. Mm. Um, I did my master's at Manchester Met University. So they were both kind of former technical colleges, a bit like, um, I guess in Sweden, more like a KTH. Um, so yeah, they, they'd both been polytechnics originally. So they had this kind of strong kind of uh, technical background, which was great, but then became universities when they changed that at that point. Um, and they were both good. You know, they were both really solid and also forward thinking. I remember on computer, I did a computer science degree first mm. and that was my bachelor's degree, and there was some fantastic teaching on that. You know, we did courses about computers and public policy. I remember one of us the courses, <laughs> automation and society. Wow. You know, a load of stuff on human-computer interaction, which is then what I really specialized in, you know, like the way that people use things, which was then a short step to interaction design. That was, it wasn't called interaction design then, but that's what it was, really. And artificial intelligence and so on. I mean, you know, we were looking at all of these big questions. We were looking at the role, again, of mm. automation and jobs and replacing people and AI and all of those questions were there. And I did it from 1988 to 1992, you know, so that was probably before you were born. So those are the days when, um, you know, it, all of those things were on the table, but climate, no, uh, not once really social justice. 
Not really. I mean, maybe around this question of automation and mm. workers having their jobs replaced, but I don't think you know. I don't think race ever came up or privilege in that sense. Um, gender equality did come up because I did my final year thesis actually on gender bias in computer science, so which was my choice for some reason, but it was um, really super interesting. I was very aware that the course was heavily male dominated. I guess often as they still are. So that's what I then studied because I was not a great coder. I was okay at that, but I was much more interested in this kind of social side. But yeah, the other things didn't. And I think that's different now for sure. I think students are, I don't, I don't think it's a question of smart. I think, you know, a student from the 1940s was also smart technically. Um, yeah. So it's more these challenges frame absolutely the way a lot of, of let's say, you know, 20-year-olds to 25-year-olds, the kind of that's the master's level students I'm teaching mm. often. Maybe they're a little bit older, some of them, but they are heavily thinking about climate, about social justice, race questions, gender questions, identity questions, mm. uh, to some extent health as well. I think that's probably not quite as seen as urgent in quite the same way. Um, so that is different, which is heartening and good because, you know, they're, they're really... That means we can open up these big challenges and point design at them, hence the idea of doing the strategic design masters in the first place. Um, whether it's enough, I'm not sure, or whether that's something that, you know, they, they're still outnumbered. <laughs> um, and of course, I, you know, we're very, I'm very conscious we are teaching designers that have chosen to do a strategic design masters at an architecture school. So they're going to be that way inclined, if you know what I mean, to those kind of questions. Mm. I don't know if that's the same if you're doing engineering at Cotihor or, you know, English literature at Lund or whatever. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, this is very interesting. And I'm, I have a question also, like, uh, in Vinova, do you see a pattern where, like, people apply for a specific funding? Like, is it the climate, health, smart cities? Mm. Do, do, do you see a pattern? Um, I think we also have a pattern, obviously, inside Vinova as well, because we, we create those funding opportunities. So we create the boxes that you apply into. If yeah. <laughs> um, so you get what you make. You know. So if you make the box with climate written on it, that's what you're going to get. Um, and I think we can see a shift there. I think you know, there's definitely, obviously, and we're in Sweden, so it's a, in some senses I think there's a lot of awareness that um, the difference that Sweden can make is around things like climate and circularity, to some extent social justice, particularly around gender. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do around race and ethnicity, but still it's... Those are understood as kind of, those would be like Swedish things to address, you know, along with engineering and technical challenges and things like that. So so I think there's a reasonable sort of almost like base load of that loaded into the system. Yeah. You know what I mean, um, I don't think it's enough, personally. I, I still find we are, how can I put this in a way that doesn't get me into trouble? We're not a, <laughs> we're not a leader that we should be. Sweden? Um, yeah, and that's interesting because you think, well, actually, of course, we're a leader in lots of ways. You know, we're yeah. theoretically one of the most innovative countries in the world and we're theoretically pretty good with our carbon emissions and things like that. But what I'm getting at, given the privilege we have, we're a wealthy country, relatively small, highly organized and well-governed, theoretically. Um, we should be really genuinely making moves, like next step moves. Mm. And I feel like we're going through some of the safer moves in the playbook so for instance there are energy you know energy generation i'm sure we'll solve that within minutes you know it's just like we already have a lot of hydroelectric uh, yeah we already have a lot of um 
renewable loaded into the system. So it's kind of low hanging fruit for us, you know, like switching diesel cars to electric cars, easy. But, but I mean, but, not really It's a technical challenge and Sweden's demonstrated it's really good at that stuff. But that's the really hard questions are not doing hydroelectric because hydroelectric also damages the landscape. So how would we get to renewables without doing that? That's, that isn't a question being asked really because we've already invested in this a long time ago. Not having the number of cars on the road that's true sustainability. Um, switching the engine from one mode to another, that's the low-hanging fruit one again. That's kind of the easy one, if you yeah. know what I mean. Uh, but it just creates a bunch of other sustainability problems, you know, sort of switches from one to another. And the harder one to do in both cases would be either uninstalling an infrastructure that we've told ourselves is really good. <laughs> that's really hard, because yeah. you know, you're going back on decisions previously made in good faith just like the traffic engineers did when they made the roads outside the window. They thought they were doing the right thing. You know, I don't blame them. It's just the data they were working with, right? But but taking that down, that's then a much bigger challenge. You know, mm. It's just a, that to show if we made that kind of move, that would be super powerful and very helpful, actually, for the rest of the world. And then dealing with the, like the demand around cars and the way we've loaded that into the system. Again, those are the moves we need to make now. And you can see cities like... Um, Paris and Barcelona leading on that. Uh, Berlin just yesterday, you know, talked about car-free. Yeah. Inside the S-Bahn, they're having um, a vote around that. And if they get 170,000 signatures, and they're already at 100,000, you know, mm. it's, that would be an enormous move. And that that isn't the kind of move we're making here. And it's partly, I think, because we're so successful at the other stuff. Yeah. You know, the kind of that first wave of sustainability challenges on the supply side that we have not really taken the leap so that demand side. So that's what I'm interested in. You know, how do we, because Sweden can do it it's, and we should do it again because we're privileged. We owe it to the rest of the world because our wealth has been built off the back of the rest of the world. So we, it's, you know, we have to pay back in that way. Yeah. But why we don't do that? Just tons of reasons. I mean, it's... Um, Give me some. Uh, so systemically, you know, we're locked into a global economic system which offsets our emissions somewhere somewhere else. So our carbon emissions inside Sweden's borders can come right down. But as we know, that's because, you know, if you look at our consumption patterns, mm. super high. Yeah. You know, I guess we're in the top 20 in the world, thereabouts, maybe even top 15, top 12. There. Um, so that's because those carbon emissions are offset somewhere else at the point of production, which might be in China or Malaysia or whatever. And, or, or rather the waste from our batteries might also end up in a dump in Indonesia or Vietnam. So, Again, the the way that the system works, it preferences your carbon emissions inside your borders and you focus on your national boundaries because I think, we've sort of, again, we've set up the government to sort of look after the national context. But we've really shifted just the problem to from one bit of the world to another mm. and it's all connected. You know, sure. it's like uh, there's the great environmental writer, Timothy Morton, just you know, mentioned about air conditioning once. He said, you think air conditioning is making the air cooler? It's not. It's just moving the hot air out, building into the street. It's still the same air. It's still hot. In fact, it's hotter because you've used energy to yeah. make it do that. And it's all connected. It's all just, you know, one molecule was inside the building a minute ago. Now it's on the outside. Mm. Still got the same heat energy, if not more. So we haven't really solved the problem there. We've just moved just move it. it now. So that's fundamentally locked into the system. Mm. So, I mean, that's about as basic as you can get, isn't it, in terms of why don't we change that kind of question is because we haven't framed it as that kind of challenge. We're not working in systems, truly working in systems. We're working in the systems that are convenient to us at the moment. 
you know, which happened to map onto the way that we've thought about organizing the world mm. for the last 19, 19th century, 20th century. So that's one for sure. Our success in the 20th century also maybe holds us back sometimes. Because if you think about Sweden in 1900, it was a very poor country. And within one generation, more or less lifted itself to one of the wealthiest countries yeah. in Europe through extraordinary work, amazing, you know, social democratic building projects and, you know, all of that incredible infrastructure and housing and economy and industry. I mean, in and, and alongside that social movements and so on and unionization and giving women the vote and all of these things, you know, really mm. powerful story. And then the 20th century is kind of a continuation of that. Um, but again, it's a bit like with my hydroelectric example or the car example. What do we say? Well, actually, well, that was f maybe fine for then. You know, maybe that was okay yeah. in 1930, 1950. Right, maybe it was the right decision. But now it's not. It seems, you know, the game has changed mm. now. So you have to unpick all of that stuff. And it's hard because we have pride in the first wave, you know. And, it, and we have to get it right, the messaging right. It's not, I'm not saying that was bad. Again, I'm not saying there were evil people making the wrong decisions. There were good people making the right decisions with the data they had for yeah. good reasons. Very powerful story, very impressive story. Um, but when that gets wrapped up in a sort of a sense of pride, then you lose your ability to constantly keep changing and looking at the landscape around you and saying, well, hang on, now what's, now what's changed? Now we know biodiversity mm. uh, is a much bigger deal than it was... Um, thought to be in 1940 when we started making hydroelectric dams you know it just mm. wasn't on the agenda now it massively is because of extinction <laughs> so so those kinds of reframings are really hard to do when you've told yourself you're a success story for the previous moves mm, exactly you know it's like uh i don't know if this is a good analogy or not i'll go there but you know if you're a footballer and you just tr you've been making the same moves a year after year after year and it's worked and it's worked you scored 30 goals a season and then it stops working it's, you've got to completely reinvent the way that you play that's exactly. really hard you know so so i think it's um those those reasons are there's two fairly fundamental ones uh i think there's obviously other ones as well like a general fragmentation around politics doesn't help as well you know sort of decision making is more complex than it was again maybe arguably in the 30s mm. and 40s and 50s where you could motivate a kind of a mainstream movement around building the focus who's or the million program, you know, like imagine the million program, amazing project, 1965 to 1974, built a million affordable dwellings uh, with good, good outcomes and bad outcomes, obviously, like with anything at that scale. But um, there was no doubt that that was helped by, let's say, a more sort of um, a decision-making culture politically that was more attuned to making that kind of decision. And now the world is just more complex, mm. more diverse, it's more fragmented, it's more, you know. And those, some of that stuff is good, like diversity, good, massive move forward. Mm -hmm. The fragmentation, not so much. Mm. And, um, you know, New Zealand just tried to do um, 100,000 houses in 10 years and gave up. And, you know, there were roughly about 5, 6 million people. Sweden was about 7 million people when it did million program it, so roughly equivalent. And they just said, this is impossible, can't be done. You know, we can't do 100,000. <laughs> 10 years and this is in 2020 so we've gone backwards somehow and it's not a technical challenge that one of course you know how to make houses yeah um in fact it's easier now than it was when we did million program we know a lot more about it so if it's not a technical challenge to do that then it's you know it's basically a political one and that that is 
way harder now, which again is why my projects are about the way we make decisions. Mm. How do we collectively come together, recognizing diversity, but make shared decisions? Mm. And that's um, that's a very different set of gears or muscles to use than the, the previous mode. Yeah, yeah. And also, you, I know that you're a very active part of rethinking and reinventing streets mm. here in Stockholm and Sweden in general. Mm. So, and now we, we have the story of One Minute City. Mm. So, what is like the background of, of this project? Um, builds on what I was just saying in that the street for me is kind of the, it is the city. <laughs> As in, it's like the basic unit of cities, if you think of it like that. And they're distinctly urban things. You know, that's where the whole, where all systems collide one way or another. And they're places of uh, social life and interaction and politics. You know, like when whenever there's a march, if you remember Black Lives Matter marches, you know, they happen on streets for obvious reasons. Yeah. And it's also where shops happen. And it's also where making happens. It's where street parties happen. Um, but it's also places that are completely every day at the same time that we move through all the time without really thinking about them. You know? So they're kind of, they're every day, they're every day, they're everywhere. They're all around us all the time. We live in them. We interact with each other in them. They have our cultures kind of baked into them and so on. So they're really powerful. If I can think of, you know, if you said to me, like, what's one piece of the architecture of the problem of a city? You know, like what's the, what's the, what's the kind of lever that you would use? Uh, it comes to me, it comes to the street. Because it's kind of it's the most contested space, it's the most everyday space yeah. at the same time. So it's a massively complex system, and yet completely everyday and everywhere. Um, so I think it's a super powerful thing, and and that's why I I've done lots of work over the years about thinking okay, how do we begin to uh, unlock the potential of that as a space? It's a shared space, a public space, and how can we? explore the street as a vehicle for addressing these grand challenges. So, you know, the street in the context of biodiversity regeneration or climate breakdown or social justice um, or public health, you know, or education, like any of those questions you can play out in the street and usually all at the same time because they're systemically interlinked. You know, the way that we imagine a parking space um, tells us what we think about climate breakdown or public health, you know, it tells us what we're kind of valuing there in those systems, and the way we make decisions. So uh, when I got to Vinova, I was building on a, quite a few years of working with, within and around streets and building, of course, on a big tradition of many, many others that have been working in that space, particularly. Um, and Within Vinova, though, we're not organized around things like streets, as you might imagine. Uh, we're organized a bit more around sectors like mobility or health or urban development, um, you know, society building, things like that, or industry. And so we had, a, we, we had a mobility section, and they were funding projects around mobility. And usually it had been you know, sort of funding uh, vehicle technologies. You might imagine, again, in Sweden, we're good at that, we're big at that. So there's a lot of funding in that direction. So I thought, well, let's look at the other end of the challenge here around mobility in terms of its demand for it. You know, how, if you talk about then how do we make a sustainable city, building again what I just before, one thing to do is electrify everything for sure. And I think, you know, I think we should, diesel and petrol have no place in uh, the 21st century. But the other thing you can do as well is look at the, uh, again, stepping back to my stage minus one. It's like, well, what is moving and yeah. why? You know, and what's that about? And I'm really influenced here by, there's a British architect called Cedric Price who said in 1966, 
technology is the answer, but what was the question? <laughs> so he's kind of stepping back into this. You know, like, what is a city like Stockholm or Manchester? Like, how do they move around? What are they about? What are they for? What's going on there? What do you have to move and why? And having answered those kind of questions, we can then talk mobility technologies. But you go that way around. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have, as we see out the window here in Solna, you have the technology driving the urban planning, which then, as in the technology in this case, being the car and the truck, and that then drives the urban outcomes, which are not good for nature in this case. Mm. So I was trying to flip that around a lot. And so with the mobility team there, and a great team inside Vinova, we did, um, particularly my colleague Philip uh, Shelgren, uh, we coordinated a set of um, workshops around mobility. And uh, long story short, we got to about, 300, 400 organizations, one way or another, wow. this way, public, private. Only from Sweden. Yeah, almost exclusively from Sweden, because we're trying to get to, uh, the, the, I call them actors or system actors, the people in the system mm. trying to make things happen. So people running, uh, the, the founder of Move by Bike, a logistics company, or people from Voy, the e-scooter company, but also people from Arbe Volvo, the truck company, and people from Volvo Cars and... Also, Stockholm start traffic department, you know, also a politician, also, you know, like a mixture of, imagine if you took again the streets and you sort of say, who are the stakeholders in the system that define what happens there? It's this combination of those things. Uh, It's importantly, it's not citizens, if you know what I mean. It's not like the users of the street in that sense. That comes later in the story when it comes to the actual design. But just the starting point, we wanted to assemble, you know, all of these kind of question marks yeah like, uh, what is the street about so we did we did a series of workshops went through a design-led process of you know sort of unpacking and putting them together in small groups small teams diverse groups different locations getting them to draw work across each other you know not really it wasn't like the car guys can sit in one corner and the environmental <laughs> folk in the other you know you have to work together yeah. or again recognizing you can use the street mm. as which is clearly an outcome of all of their decisions collectively you can use the street to then organize around. You, know, you can say you're all implicated in making this happen, as are we. Um, so what comes out of that shared discussion? And that gave us a few starting points. And one of them was around electri- electricity, for sure, like electrifying everything. So there's a big project running called Grid. Um, another one was around e-commerce, because that's obviously changing the way that retail happens massively with huge impact on mobility and huge impact on the street. You can see cities like New York drowning under Amazon parcels, right? So the streets are not designed for that level of no. brown envelope and cardboard box hitting the streets in that way. And we want to say we have a we have a window here. We could think about how should e-commerce happen in Sweden to some extent. Mm. And um, one of them was more around uh, lower density environments. So, you know, villages, towns, countryside, that kind of thing, where the, where the car is more of a necessary actor just by almost by definition because of density. Yeah. But then the other one was the street. And we said if we, you know, if we tackle the street and you sort of pull the strings or the threads coming out of that, you get to almost all of the urban decisions um, one way or another. And you can actually keep pulling those strings and obviously connect them together. So the grid and the and the village, you know, they all connect to the street actually because they're all absolutely part of the same system. Mm. I mean, they're physically part of the same system. If you think of just all of the roads and streets yeah, they're- in Sweden, they're all connected. By definition, sure. so it's the same system, mm. but we don't think of it like that. You know, you think, okay, the E4 is separate to the uh, <laughs> 73, which is separate to, you know, Fogelsheshvig. And it's like, no, they're not. They're all actually physically connected. <laughs> so 
So we knew that therefore you could pull up one end of that system, like mm. the street end, and it would ripple through as the way that systems work. And a series of small changes, if you make them coherently, mm. might actually ripple through to a much bigger set of outcomes. If you change one street, actually, because a street is a street is a street on mm. one level, and they're all completely different at another level. Uh, but at the level, they're all the same, like let's say law or policy. You know, it's the same parking space law across all of Sweden, pretty much. So if you change something based on a prototype in Stockholm or Gothenburg, actually that could be unlocked. That yeah. insight could be unlocked in Uppsala or Malmö, mm. you know, without too much work there. So, so that that was the kind of principle. That's how we ended up in this space. And then it was a case of, all right, um, now what? And what what would our interventions be? And that's where the one minute stuff comes in. Mm. So you made these workshops first with the like the makers of the streets. The, the mm. Those responsible for like um we didn't go to academics, for instance. Mm. This is kind of on purpose. Why? Is um we wanted to get to the people in the system that were very close to it, that were making active decisions on a daily basis. Okay. On, on you know, on the understanding that again, the people actually usually involved in systems mm. are the experts, actually. You know, the ones that are trying to run an e-bike startup. <laughs> Or a citizen in a street where he or she lives using an e-bike, they are the actual experts in that street. Yeah, like they know that place. The mm. citizen in particular, because they live there and work mm. there and play there, but also the person trying to you know get something done. Now, academics can give you other kinds of insights, other kinds of knowledge. You know, they can bring in a more considered knowledge, longitudinal research. They can research what's happening. They can correlate that with research from across the world. They can run models around things. Yeah. But by definition, they're usually not the expert in that place. Mm. And there's so two different types of expertise there. And we wanted to use the former, you know, the kind of place-based expertise uh, in that context. Yeah. So after the workshops, you got the idea of One Minute City. Or mm. did you continue with the, with the users and then you got the One Minute uh, City? So the One Minute City thing actually, in some senses, as a, comes through my work from years ago. It's just that the name occurred to me um, once we were getting into the definition of what are we doing here? Mm. <laughs> and of course it's framed by the 15 minute city, which also started emerging um, mainstream around the same time, I suppose 2019 uh, or there, maybe 2018. Um, and I was very influenced by 15 minute city and the work of Moreno and others and of course at the same time it makes perfect sense you know it's just like this is clearly an idea this is how cities are used to work. yeah you know so it's kind of it's one of those lovely things where uh it's been staring us in the face for centuries and then at some point in order to get something done you sort of have to put a name on it exactly and carlos moreno has done a lot more than just put a name on it you know he's done a lot of work around it as well but there was a difference with the 15 minute city which i felt was important to bring out maybe i'll get to in a minute but it's um Just to close the story, it was, you know, what came out of those workshops quickly when we switched them into design workshops mode was that we could use the practices of tactical urbanism to get something going in the streets, but mm. do that. But doing that as the national government asks the question of when does tactical urbanism become strategic? Mm. Like, what's the difference between those two? And so, you know, we're very aware of things, obviously, like parklets. I've worked with those. I've done them myself. I did yeah. Parking Day in Sydney back in 2008 when I was living there. So, you know, very heavily immersed in that scene. But you could also see that, um, you know, pop-ups pop down. 
basically by definition, as my friend Brian Boyer says, it's the reason they can pop up is because they're easy to pop up. But yeah. They're also easy then to pop down at the same time. They haven't actually changed the context around them. What I call the dark matter, actually, the dark matter being the law, the policy, the organization, you know, mm. pop-ups tend not to change those things. They tend to just make an intervention, like an acupuncture or kind of insertion, without trying to go through the official front door of changing the policy first. Mm. They're trying to demonstrate something. That's the superpower of the pop-up, right? It makes something very tangible, very quickly. But it's Achilles' heel, or it's kryptonite, if I use the superpower analogy, is that it doesn't change the policy usually because it's not done involving policymakers, no. it's not done involving planners. It's you know, it's, so we had to use this. You know, how do we get the best case here where we can use the practices of tactical, like making something happen, mm. making it super tangible, making it participative, literally making something happen in the street that we can stand in and talk around and engage people around and demonstrate something is possible. There is an alternative future for this space. It was parking space, now it's a garden. You know, yeah. that's something you can demonstrate with a pop-up. But doing it as the national government, you have then a responsibility to think through, okay, we need to bring in the National Transport Agency around this, Transport Tourism, the traffic agency, really. Mm. Uh, we need to bring in Stockholm Region as well as Stockholm Stad. We not, need to do not just one city, but multiple cities. That, again, isn't usually done. Usually a tactical. It's either done by a community in one space. And you can see that in places like San Francisco. Amazing work, but basically done in the bits of San Francisco that are likely to do pop-ups and parklets. Yeah. You know, like the, the people with the resources to do it, essentially. So it's not equitable as a result. It doesn't happen everywhere. No. And when you're the government, you have a responsibility to be equitable. You have to think, okay, how's this going to scale? Yeah. How do you make something that will not just work in um, plan, like a nice, easy, simple bit of the middle of the city where clearly the streets should be heavily industrialized, <laughs> but also Solna, where it's been built around cars. You know, like how would that work? That's the responsibility you have as a strategic body or a, a government mm. that you don't have as a tactical. Like a community in Solna can get something going here without having to worry too much about what, what happens in Farshta, yeah. the other part of Stockholm. True. And that's the beauty of it. And that's what you want to have happen. Because mm. citizens will make things happen in a way that governments never can. But the government's job is to start thinking of that. Okay, why did, why did the government exist? Well, the government exists to make that equitable. Yeah. You know, to make sure that that's available to everybody everywhere so mm. that they can begin to do that kind of thing. So so we, we got very quickly to this question of, okay, we'll, we'll do a set of, uh, we'll work with ARCDES, the National Centre for Architecture and Design. We commissioned uh, through them a great uh, industrial design firm, Lundbury Design, based here in Sweden, who had done lots of um, sort of, you know, sort of infrastructure-led design, industrial design stuff around transport often. And we came up with a set of interventions. You can see all of that stuff on the internet. You know, it's just sort of a, a way of building a kit of parts that could not just change one street, but could grow to a sort of a national kit of parts, almost like an open source toolkit that cities can download effectively and build themselves. Yeah, The learning comes from within the system. I'm hugely influenced by open source code here like Linux or, or games like Minecraft or things or Roblox where you can communities can basically modify the game world, mm. upload things, things which then become available to others in the game world, right? So that's um, that thinking doesn't usually happen in the government, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that thinking is totally available to us. And that's all then happening. But then on my urban side, that's when I start thinking, okay, what's going on in this interesting is uh, it's super participative and intimate, and it's the scale of a parking space, it's the scale of a street. Mm. And so that's the immediate place outside your front door. You know, it's like your most immediate, intimate relationship. You know the name of the guy that runs the bar across mm. the street. You know the 
person that runs the kindergarten next door. You know the, your neighbors' names. You might pick up a bit of litter outside the front of your house. You know, it's like it's your street in a way that you you might not somewhere else. You might plant something in the verge of the grass outside your house in a way that you wouldn't go to somebody else's neighborhood and start planting tomatoes there. That would be a weird thing to do. So, you know, you might have a detailed understanding of that place and the relationships that make it up and you're a participant in it, heavily involved. And that's based, again, just on my years and years and years of research, but then also just being around cities and seeing the cities that work well. I've seen this delicate balancing act. Like I was really struck by this in Berlin once in Schoenberg where residents started just planting their own street themselves, like their garden outside in the street because the municipality had run out of money and so they stopped planting it. So the city just took over. And what came out of that was this beautifully diverse um, garden yeah. because everybody is different. And yeah. so you might plant tomatoes and I might plant mint, you know, and it's just, whereas if it's the municipality, it's going to be, okay, it's pretty much going to be same, the same yeah. all the way down the street because that's just easy. It's more efficient that way. Yeah. And it's fine. But um, this was really powerful seeing how that diversity could play out and that forces a set of discussion. Okay, mm. if you're going to plant mint, I'm not going to plant tomatoes because they don't go well. <laughs> Maybe they do. You know, it's like that's, that's going to have that kind of relationship and it's possible at that scale. In a way, you can let, Mustafa and Dan figure out that conversation, right? It doesn't need mm. the municipality to broker that between us, really. That can be done from person to person and build social fabric in that way. So I'm heavily interested in this kind of, how do you use design to foreground how social fabric gets knitted up in a community through mm -hmm. these small interactions? You know, how do you build a space that enables people to own it, literally, in the most meaningful sense of the word, because it's public space, um, and work that through themselves together with their own interactions and their own contributions, yeah. their creativity coming out, their diversity showing, right? And then that sits on a platform that the municipality is responsible for because there are some things that you can't rely on the community to do, you shouldn't do, ethically or for other reasons. Or you just can't do because it's hard. You know, it's the, can the community clear the entire street of snow in the deepest snowfall? Probably not. You probably need a snow clearer for that. You're not going to have a snow clearer at the scale of a street. You know, that needs to be organized by the municipality. Yeah. You can have people look after the snow on the pavement outside their front door. That's totally mm. doable. That's what happens in Finland all the time. You know, it's basically built into the system. So it's this balancing act, again, asks this question of this kind of social contract. What are you doing in your city? What do you own? What, what, what can you contribute? What can you make? And then... What does the city do? The wider sum of the parts there. What is a city? Is the all of those small decisions adding up to something bigger than the sum of the parts? And that goes into, okay, what do we then organize at neighborhood scale? What do we organize at district scale? What do we organize at city scale? You can't make a subway at street scale. That would be absurd, you know. We only like two subway cars long <laughs> with no no track. It's just clearly that is a 60-minute city decision, I would say, right? So I have this kind of sense, okay, there's different decisions happening at different scales there. Mm. Subway is a 60-minute thing. It only makes sense if you have a couple of million people. Yeah. That kind of geography, you need a subway. You, don't, you can't make a subway at a district scale even. That's absurd. You could make a light rail system, maybe, at a scale of a 30-minute city, perhaps. You could make a bus system, potentially, like, or let's just say a shuttle system at the yeah. scale of 15 minutes. You know, it's, let's uh, trundle people around there, a nice little autonomous shuttle, totally fine. But you wouldn't actually try and get that thing to go 60 minutes because it's only going 15 kilometers an hour. It'd take you a long time. Mm. And a shuttle doesn't really make sense at a one-minute city scale. You know, that's a street scale. That's walking, yeah. wheelchairs, bikes, you know, things like that. 
And I'm interested then in that kind of decision-making at those different scales. You can have a football stadium, a big football stadium, 60-minute for sure, of course. You don't have a massive football yeah. stadium at the 15-minute scale. You have a football pitch. Yeah. A school has one. And you have a school in every 15 minutes. It makes perfect sense. Mm. And at one minute, you can have kids playing football in the street. You know, that's, mm. So football stretches across those different kind of uh, scales of decision-making. Healthcare, same. You have kind of a big hospital at the 60-minute scale, specialists, special equipment, 15-minute mm. scale, let's say neighborhood healthcare center, one-minute scale, you want the health to be produced by the street. You know, so if you walk out into the street, you want it to be green, clean air, yeah. clean water, safe. You know, so there's health happening there. Exactly. It's just happening in a very intimate, personal way. It's literally making you healthier as you walk through it. Right? Mm. So again, I've stretched health then as a question across the different scales. And one end of the scale is heavily participative. Yeah. People are very involved in it in a, in a genuine sense, making, contributing, the one-minute scale. The other end of the scale, the participation is more democratic. I elect someone to look after that 60-minute scale. So yeah. they decide on a subway, having done all the appropriate checks and balances, obviously. So there's, you know, there's different types of decision-making happening there. The, de- the subway decision, super long-term decision. You make that decision for 100 years. Right? Yeah. So, whereas at the one-minute scale, there are quite often decisions you can back out of. A tree may be less, actually. A tree is a hundred minute. Yeah. Sorry, a hundred year story as well. But you know, if we have a street party on Sunday, you can clear that up by Sunday night. You know, it's yeah. it's come and gone. Right? You can't do that with decisions at the sixty minute scale. So it kind of gives you this sense of different types of decision making, different types of participation, different types of engagement, different types of responsibility. How do you join these things together in a system? Starts coming into view there. And with 15 Minute and the work of Paris, again, I was super impressed by it and just thought, okay, that makes perfect sense for the idea that you'd organize municipal services and amenities at that scale. Mm. So what does Mustafa need around him in 15 minutes? Okay, we, the municipality, will make sure there's a school there, we'll make sure there's employment, there's a doctor's surgery, there's green <coughs> space, there's, you know, all of those things are within your 15 minutes, but it's kind of municipality is doing it on your behalf and then my behalf. Yeah. That's the way the decision-making goes. Whereas what can Mustafa do in the street at the one-minute scale? I wanted to bring that into the mix because the other one is a bit more technocratic. If you mm. like. It's kind mm. of coordinating the city for you. Mm. And it's technocratic in the best sense. Mm. You know, it's like it's making very smart decisions based around people's needs and desires, ideally. Um, and that's massively complex because immediately, you know, we might live in the same apartment block, but you're different to me. So actually, if in our 15 minutes, theoretically, we should have different cities. So mm. how that happens technically is going to be super hard. Yeah. There's almost infinite numbers of 15-minute cities <laughs> if you go that way. So that's why I wanted to bring in, again, this one-minute city thing and say, well, instead of the municipality organizing stuff for Mustafa and Dan, then more what can Mustafa and Dan coordinate at their street and then what does the municipality do around that? It's that kind of decision-making. And that's what we wanted to test on the basis that that then enabled us to start putting these questions on the table. Mm. How is health organized in a city of the future, climate-resilient, socially just, you know, health-generating, all of those, a learning city, all of that stuff? Those different scales of decision-making, different interventions, different kind of political systems almost, um, different levels of engagement. What can we reasonably ask citizens to look after? Mm. What does the municipality need to pick up? 
it was a way of, you know, what I'm looking for are projects that are vehicles. We're exploring those questions mm. in reality, in tangible ways with real partners on board. But this is like a theory. Did you try it on the ground and see if it's really work or no? It's just like a concept. Yes and no. Um, <laughs> so, um, and this is also then a question of like, how do you do this design work? Because if I'd led with, here's the theory. Mm. I'm not sure we would have got anywhere. <laughs> so we led with, here's the practice. And so we did, yeah, test it on the ground in four streets in Stockholm, a couple of streets in Gothenburg, a couple of streets in Helsingborg, a city in the southwest of Sweden. Now we're into phase two, which will introduce Umeå in the north, um, more streets in Stockholm, Gothenburg and Helsingborg, and then a bunch of other cities to follow. Very good conversations with Malmö, a um, bunch of cities like Uppsala, you know, kind of lining up. You can already see also, by the way, on our interventions, which I'll describe a little bit in a minute, uh, other cities that are nothing to do with us changing stuff, which is great. You know, one of my colleagues went on a holiday to Lysekil over the summer, and he said, here's a kind of a street move style intervention happening in that city. It had nothing to do with us. <laughs> and I was really deliberately, you know, trying to use social movement tactics here a little bit, you know, like create publicity around it in order to have the idea spread. Yeah. Again, remember, I'm trying to think of an open source system. Y- yeah, exa- exactly. Cities can actually do this by themselves. Mm-hmm. There's no rocket science here. There's no nothing magic about it. No. Um, so it's motivating a force for change, really, rather than A, paying them to do it, or B, you know, like giving them a standard kit that's the same up and down the country. That wouldn't really work, right? It wouldn't have the diversity. So, so yeah, to answer your question, you know, we we deployed, we designed with Lumbody Design and Arctos, these prototypes based on sketches I'd done like a year before of these kind of um, simple wooden interventions that could fit into parking spaces, parklet style, but joined together to a bigger system. So they actually are like almost like bits of Lego or Ikea where you can begin to like <laughs> join them together very quickly, you know, very clever little joints designed by Lumbody. Uh, that enable you to slide this into place. It's built out of Swedish timber, which is great. So we can start talking about circular materials. We can start talking about circ- uh, materials that are not usually used in the street. You know, and again, this is deliberate. Um, uh, we worked with the artist Brian Eno on some design principles for this stuff. And one of the things he was talking about was building things that are easy to adapt and change. Mm. The streets are changing all the time. And I remember the one minute scale again, as I just described, was fast and changing. And you want it to be continually evolving because things change. People change. People come and go, cultures change, technologies mm. change. Our problem is that we've usually designed our streets in concrete and steel, and then we're baking in the mobility technologies and cultures of the time into things that are really hard to change. Mm. So we see outside the window here, we see the impact of 1950s-style traffic planning based on 1950s-style understanding of what city are about. Again, no criticism. That's what it was. Yeah. But if you make that in concrete and steel, that's going to last for 200 years. And that's a long time past the 1950s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of our other things, our attitudes, have changed radically since the 1950s. But why would you, you know, why do you bake those attitudes into the wrong material so it's super expensive and yeah. hard to change? So using wood on purpose not only softens the street, talks about different textures, talks about circularity, but you have to change it. It's not going to last forever. It's wood, you know. The nice thing about wood is it rots. Yeah. So just like we do. <laughs> so we has to it has that clock cycle that means that you have to come back to the question. Mm. And this little bit of wood's looking a bit tatty now. Okay, we've got to change it. Actually, while we're here, maybe this should be a barbecue. 
You know, maybe there should be a ping pong table. Yeah. Or maybe there should be a tree. Or maybe we put it back to a parking space. It didn't work. I don't know. Either way. But you've built in that possibility of change just through the choice of material. Mm-hmm. So that was really important. And then these modules then were a kind of a base layer, like a boardwalk. And uh, again, I chose boardwalk in particular because this is a thing that Swedes understand very well. You know, all of us, we're in a very lakey country full of lakes and seas. We have boardwalks along them. They're beautifully designed so they fit around the rock and the landscape. They enable you to sort of walk out into a space you couldn't walk out into before. They work in snow and rain, and people don't worry about mm. them too much. So we knew we could use that metaphor yeah. and work with the, you know, you can also walk out into the space that is public space, by the way, but it used to be a parking space. So, so those things then have applications put on top of them. So it's almost like App Store and apps in this kind of language. Like a boardwalk is like the base layer, the platform, mm. and then you have the apps on top, and the apps might be a scooter stand or a bike sharing rack or a tree uh, or an app is more than a tree, but you know, to begin, sorry, a tree is more than an app, but to begin with just uh, let's say some greenery in a planter box, yeah, social things and so on. So you have this idea of then a kit of parts that can change in response to people's needs sitting on a very consistent platform boardwalk and the library becomes a kit of parts that could be held by the state if you like. So it's like a public toolkit, mm-hmm. just like Ikea and Lego have a kit of parts there. And the learning from every single intervention goes back into the kit of the parts. And some people will customize it. Some people will paint it in the colors of Hammerby or whatever. You know, it's like, that's totally great because you want that kind of customization and diversification happening over time. So we deployed those in Stockholm, in four streets. The, uh, we're working with Spacecape as well on this one and White Architecture and a bunch of others. And they, uh, Spacecape in particular, said, hey, we should do these alongside school streets. So streets with schools on them. Yeah. Because that's a really complex, interesting interplay. And then it meant that actually, you know what we can do is we can get the school kids to be the lead designers here. So this is, again, well, this real like one-minute city thing. It's like yeah. if, if it's, this is a short street sometimes, not that much traffic. So we're just picking them on purpose. But these are the kind of streets everywhere in loads of Swedish city centers. Um, basically parking lots, <laughs> not really streets, I would say. Mm. Um, and yet with a school on them, which is full of kids and life and possibility. And sometimes those schools didn't have big schoolyards, you know. And so we're thinking, about, well, how do you actually then take the fence down and blur the line between the schoolyard and the street? And the school is the dominant actor here. So if the street designs the street, which again is sort of like a core one-minute city principle, the street isn't designed by a transport planner sitting in a city hall, you know, five kilometers mm. away, but it's designed by the street itself. If we had an old old person's home on the street, then they would be the ones designing it. If yeah. it's student housing or an apartment block, then it's the residents there and the users of the street, they're designing it. But in this case, it was a school. And so we had six-year-olds really actually you know, holding the pen, doing wow. the drawings. We gave them some you know, simple drawings that I'd done and then White and Spacecape kind of tidied those up. And it was there, they're kind of kit parts to start with. Um, just very simple doodles really. But then they were able to draw themselves and add what they wanted. And of course, kids are just brilliant at that. Yeah. The, actually the best designers in this sense. Um, so that's what then got built. And that was really nice because then we could say the, you know, the kids had designed their street and they could see this material change on the street and the wall in front of them. And you think, again, what I was trying to do there really, again, massively helped by my colleagues. Um, but imagine you put into a kid's head that you could change your city. Wow. You know, so like at the age of six, they get a chance to actually be an architect and a transport planner to some degree at least. Of course, they were 
drawings were tidied up to make them legal, but, but it was their idea and they could see that transforming their immediate environment. And I'm hoping that, you know, that, that triggers their thinking about the city as theirs to shape. It's not done to them. It's, it's for them. And it could be by them in that sense. They're an author of the city, just like you and I are. So that was um, tested. They were, they were up there for some months. Some of them are still, are still up, actually, a year later. Um, in Palma to get in Kungsholm, and that one is really still there, and I, I think will be there forever. <laughs> <laughs> Others have moved around. One of them is now in Sikla. You know, so le- le- this was the idea that these bits of kit would actually move around. And importantly, they're not the end of the process. Again, you got you, you can tell I'm trying to get this idea of change in them. Mm-hmm. There's in the end, I think streets will need much more than these bits of wood. Obviously, the wood should just go once its job is done about starting yeah. the process. Mm. What we really need to get to is a real retrofit of those streets properly. Mm. But these 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 bits of kit, this is again what the tactical stuff can do. It can get the conversation rolling. It can ask, how is it to have the streets designed by the streets? How is that going to work? Who's involved? Yeah. How does Traffic Contora, the traffic planning team at Stockholm City Council, like how are they involved? What do they do? You know, mm. these are all unknowns. So you use the project to, of course, learning from lots of other projects worldwide, but using the project to kind of figure that out in practice um so as i said it wasn't i didn't frame it as one minute city at all when that was going on because we we're saying let's just start simple prototype let's get something going mm. um theory i then start layering in afterwards you know once we can start seeing uh, so what could happen here like what happens next you know like what did, what could this be and because you also start getting kind of questions it's like well how's that going to scale or but this tree looks the same as that tree. You know, that, that should be diverse, right? And so, you know, you say, okay, great. Okay, now we're in this conversation. And then the theory starts emerging as a kind of like a um, carapace, you know, like a kind of a shell around the project. Mm. It starts kind of building up. And that's where the writing and the teaching as I start, it comes in because it forces you to start thinking about, okay, what's the theory here? Like, how does this work? And then as I said a minute ago, then you can start, saying, okay, now we have this one minute, 15 minute, 30 minute, 60 minute, we can start having that conversation. That's really interesting. Mm. But if I'd said that to all of the partners at the start, it probably would have never happened because they're like, what, what are you going on about this theory? For? It's like, you know, we, just, <laughs> we need to solve the scooter problem, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was one of the starting points for us. It. Like, okay, how do we, how do we start testing these ideas, solving real challenges on the ground? Working with Voy has been super good on that, by the way. Um, very willing contributor and partner to it. Um, so you're you're looking for a vehicle where you can work with some existing challenges, some unknown questions. You know, uh, a way of starting small enough that is easy to say yes to. Mm. A traffic contour are kind of on board. You can get them on board with a few conversations, but you know it's got the seeds of something, the DNA of something much, much, much bigger. And that's the art of this getting this kind of tactical and strategic balancing out right. And and uh, who is managing these models now? Um, well, Arctas now actually. So Arctas is the national like center. the owner. Yeah, well, good question actually. So we are building a governance model around it. So again, trying to do this in the other way round to where these things usually start from a policy making point of view in government. Mm-hmm. You usually figure out all of that stuff up front before you've done anything. Yeah, and I think that's hundred percent the wrong way around. so you know from a design point of view usually as you know you do a sketch you build a model you build a prototype yeah you might do some user testing and then you might build then you might commit to okay now we're going to make an iphone 12 
<laughs> or a Volvo XC60 or a building, you know, mm. but you, you definitely build a model first, right? You don't just go straight from the no. idea to the digger on the construction site. That would be nuts. So it, I'm trying to build that design practice into it. So the question of governance, like who owns the kit, mm. by having the public players leading that, Vinova and Arkdes and Transport Sterlison, they're all in Swedish, Mindigheten, the, uh, they're government agencies. So the public agencies are um, are leading this project from the start. Vinova is funding it largely, um, and then other cities and people like Transport Service are also contributing their time and some of their energy as well. And of course, the streets you know they belong to Stockholm Stad. So it's it's public, public, public on that side, and that's on purpose because I'm trying to reinforce the idea that the streets in Sweden are owned pretty much usually as public spaces, mm. and so they're part of the city. They belong to the city. And you as a citizen or a resident, um, they belong to you, therefore, because the city belongs to you. you know? and so it's that way around, right? And then private actors, of course, can use that. You can open up a bar on it. You can drive a car on it. You know, so yeah. you can build an app around it. Totally fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, ultimately, the city is a public good. And so at that level of the, the street itself, mm-hmm. that should be, in my view, re- remain a public good. That's how cities work at their best. If you start privatizing that problem, as as uh, you just have to look to America for the example there, right? So, um, so therefore, this kit should also be public. It should be a piece of public infrastructure, just like traffic lights are, you know, mm. in a sense. So, street furniture, you know, bus stops—they're all public things. Okay. Um. So that that so far so good. What what we don't yet have, and again we're using the project to figure it out is like, yeah. okay, literally <laughs> the the drawings, the designs. Mm. In in my view, again, ideally they are they were they're like an open source toolkit that's owned by the state and therefore available to the public and the private actors to then do things with it. Mm. And you can imagine the licensing and you know if it's private, but um, you also enable people to quickly download the drawings figure it out for themselves you know like build something locally all the liability is baked into those drawings just as they have to be anyway um but that's a really good thing but where that sits we don't really have that we don't have a mo yang for the swedish government we don't have a roblox mm. <laughs> repository of things like that like a github uh, that where you have these drawings and things in that sense so we're figuring that out as part of the project mm. but i think that that's the best way to go is to Build and learn and develop insights, do iterative development, and mm. then ask that question at the right point when it's meaningful to ask it. You've got real data and evidence to work with. So you're like you basically are kind of flipping the process. Mm. Absolutely, hundred percent. Because it's it's, and this is why it's hard. And I'm not saying it's always going to be right as well, but I think certainly at this scale for these things, for this one minute city stuff. Because again, because we're designing in adaptation, so if things go wrong, you can change them. That's built into the one-minute city dynamics, right? Fifteen-minute city as well, more or less. But again, it's then very different to a sixty-minute, sixty-minute city. A question like a subway or a football stadium. If you get that wrong, you're stuck with it. Mm. You're gonna just you're gonna spend a lot of money to make it work. You can't just uninstall, you know, the Friends Arena around the corner here. It's like it's done. That's it. It'll be mm. there for mm. forty years at least. So there's a different decision-making culture there. So that's why you do have on that project all the governance worked out in advance. Yeah, Clearly, of course, you have the ownership worked out in advance. Clearly, the business models worked out in advance. Everything around it, because it's a massive long-term decision you can't get wrong, Mm. theoretically. (laughs) 
Whereas the way that we handle risk and uncertainty at the one minute city scale is building in adaptation and a constant design process. You know, like constant change enables you to basically wiggle your way towards the right outcomes. They change all the time. Mm. It's more like, as I keep saying to people, it's more like a garden. And when you have a garden, uh, you can have a plan for a garden, but it might not happen. You know, it's just, it's, uh, depends on weather, depends on biodiversity, depends on how much time you put into it, depends on all kinds of other things, right? So you have to stay engaged. That's why garden, gardening is a verb. <laughs> and building is a verb as well, but often we think building is a noun, you know, mm. because it's like we do it and then it's done, one off. So it's more like a noun. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas gardening is clearly a verb. Uh, it's not, yeah, yeah, you it's, don't go to a gardening, you know, it's no, like it's, it's something you do. You have to do it every day. Mm you're good you know you like weeding or you're actually weeds are fine usually but you're looking at companion planting what goes well with what and it's like oh, that didn't totally work i'm going to change that i'm going to redraw my plan mm. this tomato plant hasn't worked for some reason okay i'll move it over here you know it's like it's that kind of spirit and that you can do in collaboration as well you can have multiple people working on a garden together and of course there's immense value in that mm. so i'm trying to get that kind of dynamic and that isn't policy making you know we just don't talk about policy making like gardens the politician, when, when he or she stands up there with the policymaker next to them, usually has to pretend we worked out everything in advance. Just <laughs> vote in this way or sign up here. Mm. It'll be fine. Here's the, you know, here's the roadmap. And it's mm. like, well, that, I just don't think that works for a lot of things. And we, we apply that same culture of decision-making mm. to decisions that are at the scale of a garden. Or in like a window box, whether you and I plant tomatoes outside our doors in the street. It's just, that's a different thing. Yeah. Different decision making, you know. So anyway, yeah, it's, um, that's why it's hard. Because of course those questions come up from my colleagues pretty quickly about, as you just asked, where do the plans sit? What's the governance around that? Now I can speculate as to what the answer might be. I can come up with two or three scenarios mm-hmm. for my job as a designer. But I want that actually to be informed by prototypes. By real world mm. experiments. Do, do you think this is uh, scalable in all other cities, like in the world, not only in the Nordic cities? Um, yeah, in that in the everybody's doing variations on this already. So, you know, in um, it's a bit like we were saying and laughing about the 15-minute city. It's like how cities used to work. You know, you used to have everything more or less within a 15-minute bike ride or walk anyway. It's like, of course, that's how it worked because that's all it could do. So by definition, again, the one-minute city absolutely is kind of how cities have worked forever. <laughs> so we haven't been working like that for the last half century, perhaps. But it's deep in the DNA of cities. Um, so I think that's kind of, that's one thing I'd say. So you, you know, when informal cities actually are often working like this, they have all kinds of reason, issues as a result sometimes. Mm. Because there's other things missing there, like social equity and so on, um, which we're lucky enough to have in the Nordics. But that one-minute city practice you'll see in all kinds of cities all over the place. You know, like Tokyo is where I also would talk to a lot. Very different to the Nordics in lots mm. of senses, but also similar in others. Um, the lack, you know, they don't have any on-street parking in Japan since 1965, so the streets are already kind of set for that. You have the street as a shared space usually very flat, usually not much in the way of a pavement or a sidewalk. I'm talking about like suburban streets because it's kind of built around. You can move cars down down at relatively slow speeds because they're narrow streets. 
it's kind of already working like that, you know. So I'm massively influenced by that, just as I was by the thing in Schoenberg in Berlin I mentioned a while ago. But you can see under COVID, you know, like uh, I've been working with or talking to some US cities recently. Um, loads of these street style interventions happening. What what doesn't happen in quite the same way there in the US at least is often they don't have the resources at the city level mm. to to move this through. This is a question of scaling you come back to. So I I have worked in the way that I've worked here and in Sweden, knowing that the cities A own the space, and that you can't take that for granted in the US, Australia or the UK or other places I've worked. Um, but most of the city belongs to the city in, in Sweden, if you know what I mean, in terms of actual land. Uh, big starting point. Uh, the city is relatively wealthy, if I can put it like that, relatively speaking. Just I'll underline relatively before my colleagues in Communa hassle me for saying this. But, um, you know, like a city like Gothenburg, uh, because it draws tax from its residents, very, very powerful. In the UK, you don't get really... Uh, hardly any budget to work with. Yeah. And so they don't have, um, there's no city architect in a UK city, which don't exist. Mm. Um, and it used to be like that. In 1975, 50% of the architects in the country worked in city councils or in the public sector. And now it's 0.7%. You know, so there's hardly any, mm-hmm. despite some lovely work by Finn Williams, who's now the Stads architect in Malmö, actually. And, um, Puja Agrawal setting up public practice, which has been trying to put architects back into the yeah. public sector side in the UK. Those people just aren't there. Now they are here in Sweden. So I know that like these are the things that we have in place. You have a relatively well-resourced municipality with architects and planners, well-trained, you know, in those jobs already. You have the land owned by the city. You have a backdrop of social equity, arguably. You have a kind of an environmental agenda. Um, so there's a lot of the DNA here in place, mm. but if you look at then, so yeah, so hence I can get something going using those materials, you know, and I wouldn't try exactly the same move in the US. Mm. You'd have to do it in a different way. You're probably involving philanthropy. You're probably involving a lot more private actors. You're probably involving business improvement districts. You're probably involving, you know, local retailers and a kind of an urban wealth fund, like all of those kinds of, you'd have to yeah. work in that way. Mm. But the basic principle about the street being a shared space and that you want a diverse use of that shared space and that you want that ideally moving towards north stars around environment and public health and social justice. They're locked in place in America as well, as they are in Australia. You know, So, so although some of the techniques might be mm. different, the levers that you try and pull, the goal is the same. And you can see that because of you know COVID, for instance, forced us to rethink a lot of stuff very rapidly. And you could see Australian and American cities um, opening up their streets for restaurants to to use, removing car parking, massive increase in cycling in places like the UK, and particularly in groups like um, you know women who had not felt safe cycling in the UK at all for obvious reasons because it's unsafe yeah. <laughs> um, because it's been designed by men for many years mm. with cars in mind. Um, 25% increase in women cycling in the last year, you know, so like enormous changes going on. And that is to me, that's the city trying to come out. You know, it's like that's the city breathing in the way that it should be. Mm. Of course, they should be about cycling and walking. Of course, restaurants should be able to move out into the street. That's what you go to any old city in the world, whether it's in Tunisia or Italy, um, 
restaurants use the street. Like, you know, you yeah, it's outside. Like, it's, you know, if you have the weather, if you, if you don't have the weather, you build a colonnade, mm. you build a street which is mm. protected from the weather. You know, it's like it's a natural human thing to do. And we've shuffled that all, we've actually driven it out of the way by making parking lots. And but given a, given half a chance, given a COVID stopped people moving, and we had to make it work at these one minute, 15 minute scales, because you weren't mm. doing any more than that. Turns out, this is what the city is about. It's about social life and interaction and cultural life in the street. And then, of course, greenery, and then, of course, clean air, and then, of course, clean water, and then, of course, low speeds and safety and social justice needs to be available for everybody um that's more locally economically resilient like all of those things naturally happen because that is the grain of the city that's the way you know like a piece of wood that's the way the city actually is Mm. and we've been pretending it isn't like that for 60 years so it is totally scalable (laughs) because that's what cities are about Mm. but does it cost so much to be a one minute city no i mean you know again it happens in Uh, cities in the past where there was no economy in the sense that we think about at all. You know, again, this is the natural way that cities happen. So for our in, for our interventions, uh, Vinova paid for these, you know, the prototypes to be designed and built and coordinating the project, things like that. But it's one of the smallest projects in our portfolio, for mm-hmm. sure. Like, absolutely. We have a you know three and a half billion crown I think portfolio of in, of funding every year. This is at the the very small end of that scale, yeah. <laughs> but it's been by far the most um, publicized project. You know because people have picked up on the the action there. So that's kind of an interesting interplay between those two things. Um, but you know these are bits of wood. In parking spaces, right? <laughs> it's really not expensive, right? and of course coordination, and of course some smart designers, and you know um, some fees to be paid, and so on. But you know, compared to building a football stadium or a train line, it's it's not even a blip, mm. nothing compared to building a normal size apartment block. It's nothing, mm. it's tiny. So I'm really heartened by that. These are that's, again learning from tactical urbanism, like small changes. Loosely joined together, this can be a planter box, a ping pong table. You know, mm. like the 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 powerful thing is who's making the decision, how how long does it stay there, how do we decide them? Mm. You know, again, and those things don't really have costs associated with them either. I mean, in a way they do, but it's like that. So there is a cost, for instance, in terms of parking revenue lost to the city. If you're chain, if you're turning parking spots mm. that they currently make money from into Uh, greenery, for instance, then they see, okay, one line of their budget has gone down. Yeah. Um, now, I'd argue that line of budget is covered in carbon. <laughs> so it's already bad money. <laughs> okay, I got you. <laughs> in the contemporary sense, mm-hmm. right? And it's also also unhealthy, by the way, because it creates health yeah. problems and so on and social justice questions. If you put a private car in a public parking mm. space, you're privatizing public space for the time that that car is there. So there's also social justice questions, mutually exclusive. I can't do anything else with that space if you put your car there or whatever. So, so there's all those issues with that money coming in, but that money is coming in, so I can't ignore that. That's billions of crowns going into municipalities every year. But if you put a tree there instead, what's the value of a tree mm. or two trees or whatever? Yeah. And now we, then we, we now have another project running alongside this called the value model, which is then looking at the value of these things. Wow. And that includes economically, 
but it includes other kinds of value as well. So if you think about that tree, that tree is a health worker, actually, because it's actually making the street healthier. And there's endless amounts of research which shows that in terms of CO2 reduction, in terms of yeah. urban heat island mitigation, mm-hmm. stormwater mitigation, any or numerous things, aesthetics, social life, safety. You know, you had a tree there and you are improving the street on every single metric except the car parking revenue. True. <laughs> so then it's a decision. What's most important? All of these are the car. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And is it and I'd say and I'm arguing now, given the time we're in, it's all of that other stuff. It's far bigger deal. Yeah. You know, public health, mental health and well being, way more important than car parking revenue. Yeah. True. Environmental crisis, almost existentially more important mm-hmm. than car parking revenue. Yeah. You know, social justice that again the last few years have shown is massively more mm-hmm. important than car parking revenue. Mm-hmm. So it enables us to reframe those questions and then suddenly you start thinking, oh my God, we've got all that space available to us. I mean, Sweden, we've built more space for car parking than we have living space. Wow. You know, there's like 50 square meters per person versus 44 <laughs> square meters. Places like, uh, or like in America, like Houston, there's 60, 70% car mm. related space mm-hmm. one way or another. Somewhere like Sweden, maybe yeah. 25, 30, 40%, but still massive mm. amount of space. I mean, you saw that in... This thing around Berlin yesterday, it's something like 58% of the space in Berlin inside the S-Bahn ring mm. is devoted to car-related infrastructure space. Mm. Um, whereas only about 18% of journeys are on car yeah. in Berlin. Yeah. And that could be less again, right? Mm. You know, it's just inside the middle bit, I mean, inside the S-Bahn ring. So we've massively overloaded in one direction, and we need now to start pulling mm. it back in the other. So these tiny little projects, which, again, cost really not much at mm. all, they put that much bigger question on the table. I yeah. That's why they're interesting. Yeah. So, Dan, if, if, if you summarize the one-minute city in one minute, what would you say? <laughs> I'm like, you've just given me like 50 minutes to summarize. <laughs> I'm giving you the 50-minute city. Um, so the one-minute city is about rethinking and, and acting differently in the space outside your where you live or work, you know, your immediate, intimate, neighborhood your environment it's really about the neighborhood um so it's not literally one minute but it's that space that is your neighborhood and how you interact with that what you do within that how it's planned and designed and delivered what's happening in it how frequently we change those decisions the way those decisions are made Mm. that's all it's about it's just about your immediate neighborhood and understanding complexity of all the systems within that um and in a sense, then I suppose what that gives us is a way of thinking about the city because mm. it immediately suggests, you know, if you ask me what the one minute city is, then the next question, okay, so what's the 15 minute city? Mm. And then what's the 60? Yeah. You know, and we had that conversation. But that's, so that's why I like it. It's a very simple thing. Mm. I can do it in one second, the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> but within that, it actually, you unpick then everything else. Mm. That's why I think it's kind of interesting. Mm. It's one of those. And it's it's it is really interesting, and this is like what our future cities is going to look like. And now I hope so. Yeah, this is what we work for, so it's one come true. But now, if you take the time machine and go back in time to change one thing related to cities mm. or in our cities, but you but you cannot mention to change remove cars because the previous guest mention that so doesn't it tell you something that every guest is saying cars <laughs> at some point the pattern 
becomes super clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you're allowed to change one thing in our cities in the past. So the question is, when are you going, like, yeah. which time and what are you going to change? Yeah, well, that's really hard if you can't choose the car. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that you say that, you say that. you know, that I, so I'm having to think also then what it isn't if it's not the car, but I'm also really interested in the fact that you're having guests that are kind of saying the car a lot because, of course, it's the first thing that springs to mind for me. Yeah. Because at that point you have... Um, everything I was just talking about, the decision-making switches. It goes from super local to this kind of car-based scale, which is immediately a 30-minute-ish. And the decision-making is then done by professional transport planners, not by individuals. So so I think it, I mean, I think it is the one, to be honest. Um, so if I wasn't going to pick that one, I'd maybe go back to then the 1930s. This is maybe a sneaky way of not saying cars, but by saying cars. And look at um, CM, which was the Congress International for basically modern architecture, the emergence of that. And that's when kind of modern urban planning emerges as a very technocratic, quite professionalized, very male-dominated profession driven by questions of function. Hmm. And so there's a few events around there, and obviously the Bauhaus being created in the late 20s, early 30s. SIAM is the one in sort of urban planning. Is this congress that ran for a few years. And out of that, as Luca Buzio was involved in others, there were some very good things and interesting things happening within that movement as well. And mm-hmm. I'm actually personally a huge fan of a lot of modernist design and architecture in terms of the broader ideas around universal shared values around um, understanding health and understanding new materials and technology. I mean, I find all of that very, very useful. But what was also locked in at that point was this idea of functional mm. and the city being a, a functional question as opposed to a cultural question. Mm. And that played out in cars, and that played out in highways, but it also played out in buildings. And it played out in plumbing and infrastructure. It played out in, more importantly, perhaps the culture of the way then the city was sort of handed over to a very sort of functional, almost like engineering challenge for about the next eight decades mm. from that point. You know, we're still dealing with that because, again, the decisions made then stick around because, again, they're using concrete and steel and they're making things at a certain scale for functional reasons. Mm. And so even though the culture has changed, that point, those things were being set in stone. And so out of... In terms of what you might change there, I mean, just do that better. <laughs> just don't do it with those particular that particular cabal yeah. of old men. But I do it with a more diverse group, including some of them. Yeah, because for sure there were some geniuses there. Kamuzio was a genius as much as he had issues. Put it that way. <laughs> so, um, so certainly, if there was a, if there had been a more diverse group that was balancing, you know, looking at this balancing mm. act of culture, which is what I think cities are actually about. You know, yeah, they, they, we create cities to make culture happen, conviviality and community and things like that. Mm. And of course, you need functional infrastructure to make that work. Yeah, like that's the enabler of it, but it's not the point. No, and at that point, we got them the wrong way around. It's like almost like the infrastructure became the point, mm. buildings became the point. It's like we make cities to make buildings. Mm. We don't make cities to make buildings. We make cities for culture and conviviality and community, arguably yeah. commerce, which I think is just another kind of culture, right? And then you need buildings and plumbing and so on because 
Yeah. That just has to work for you to do that other thing. But the other thing is the most important stuff. And so a culture of planning and architecture and urbanism that had been framed as sort of culture first, functionality second, mm. that would have been the thing to change. But it was, yeah, unfortunately, the other way around. Yeah. Very interesting answer. And now we are moving like from cities to the person who makes cities to you. <laughs> so more we, this is like the last section of this episode. It's yeah. going to be more about you. Uh-huh. And we start with the first question. If you will be an animal, <laughs> not a human, which animal will you choose to be and why? Well, that's, that's quite animalist thing to say. Because I think, <laughs> you know, actually I think a nature is maybe... Um, I just read this great book over the summer called um, Finding the Mother Tree by Susan Simard, who's a tree scientist. Mm. And the way she talks about trees and then natural ecosystems was so profoundly interesting. My answer actually would be tree, which you, but you might disqualify that and say, well, that's not an animal. I don't know. Mm. But I would say it's definitely clearly nature, and nature is what we are. Mm. And um, again, I don't like, uh, again, Timothy Morton always says it's kind of like an othering, almost like a form of racism. It's not racism, but it's like an othering to say we're different to other animals. Mm. And then it's different to say animals are different to nature. You know, it's kind of like it's saying that we're, we're over here and they're over there. Uh, so that's why he describes it as a kind okay. of discrimination. But it's, um, and so recognizing that we have that kind of fluidity instead of relationships. I'd, I'd rather pick tree, mm. knowing full well that it's probably not an animal by your definition. Huh. But does that count? Can I have that or not? Yeah, I think so. But until like someone th- put the parking lot instead of a tree. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. But trees, trees can spread pretty well. Yeah, yeah. they're very good. Yeah. Uh, um, that's why again, this book is so amazing. Describing how trees work as this collaborative system, not competitive. Mm. You know, they're working across species together. Yeah. And the way that the mother tree works with the seedlings and um, ensures that it can grow, mm. but without destroying the environment that it's in. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that I would love very, to learn from. Very interesting answer. And you have been in many, so many different cities, so many different public spaces. Mm. What is your favorite public space that you really would love to go there every time? You wake up in the morning or you want to have lunch or... Oh my goodness, that's such a hard question because it's like professional and personal at the same time. So it's something like, you know, <laughs> you it's, something, it's something that I'm endlessly changing because, <laughs> I, you know, it's my job. Mm. So I research it and I'm endlessly interested in it. Um, but no, I mean, I, I guess I'm interested actually in, in spaces that are sort of halfway there. So, I mean, there are certain Italian towns that I think have just nailed public space really well. I lived in Treviso in Italy. I wouldn't say this is my favorite, but it's a favorite example of, favorite, or it's an example of that type, which is perhaps mm-hmm. my favorite, which is a piazza, just a local piazza. I can't even remember the one it's called. I think it was Centro Storico. I can't remember what the piazza was. Anyway, it's just got colonnades along one side with a pizza restaurant under it. There's a kind of fountain in the middle. It's nothing special in that mm-hmm. sense. It's just surrounded a lovely scale, a bunch of streets coming into it, small streets, colonnades, kids running around. It's all the cliches, you know, <laughs> old Italian guys playing chess in the corner. <laughs> Good coffee stand over one side. Uh-huh. You might be a band in the evening. It's, you know, it's open late because it's, well, it's open all the time because it's open. You know, so there's protests happen there. Mm. There are shops around the corner. You know, it's just, I uh, and there are thousands of those in Italy. Every yeah, yeah. town has them. Um, I think, you know, streets of Berlin are in Schoenberg. Uh, 
I find particularly interesting the streets outside the sort of courtyard blocks. So that's mm. the public space bit is the street. And they're often usually these very green, um, kind of interesting sort of mixed spaces, mm. ones I'm thinking of anyway. So they're public space because they're a street, public space again. And there's cars there, but it's, it's all pretty mannered and slow. And you have things at the right scale, you know, the buildings at the right scale, things are pouring out onto it. And there's a kind of interesting blurred relationship then with the with the parks that spring off them, and like small pocket parks. Amsterdam is the same kind of grain. Mm. And then the courtyard blocks. You can see through to the courtyard blocks, the courtyard inside, and they're the private bits, but you can kind of walk into them. So this is <laughs> semi-private, you know. And it's got this blurry condition, which mm. I really like. Like if I take one step to the left, it's public, and one step in there, it's kind of private. Yeah. It might be cooperative, you know, but it's like it's open and porous. Mm, mm. And it's got that sense of change. It's super green, very convivial, very, you know, simple mm. in a sense as well. Nothing complex about that. And then finally, maybe Tokyo suburbs, which are probably formerly not public spaces, literally, because Tokyo is a weird assembly of usually private land. I mean, the city owns some stuff, but it's um, not like uh, Stockholm where we are, where, or Amsterdam where the city owns, you know, 80, 90% mm. of the land. Tokyo is not like that at all, but the streets have a public condition. Mm. So they can be like privately owned, but because of then, again, this kind of fluidity of the space, the scale of it, the way that it works mm. there, the culture of Japan, which is um, shared culture. Mm. And so the space is shared as a result. And it has that kind of everyday conviviality and um, massively complex and coded, but the layers of respect built into that enable that, that street just to work well in a really beautiful way. So it's a weird one because technically it's probably not literally on the plan public yeah. space. I don't know, but it mm. feels like it, it works like it, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And then you're, you're doing teaching, writing, a lot of working. Do you have enough time to do to, like your hobbies to work? <laughs> do, do you have some uh, now? I, I mean, I'm a massive football fan. Oh, so, wow. you know, I'm a Liverpool supporter and, um, mm. you know, I spend as much time as I th- probably think about cities thinking about <laughs> football. But um, <laughs> I used to play uh, regularly, but now I just watch. So there's that. I have mm. kids and a family. I love food, all of those kinds of things. We're completely addicted to Australian MasterChef at the moment on TV. <laughs> so I'm not a great cook, but I enjoy that massively. Mm. Um, I love reading things that are not to do with work as well, but I, you know, so reading and writing but that is that's when the, my hobbies start blurring with my uh work life and I've, i that is a very blurry line for me is it good yeah i love it because the thing about your job is cities which my job sort of is um you're in it all the time you know you can't you know as i said to you like on the way here this morning i had this you know funny kind of entrance to the building and i was just th- taking pictures thinking about that constantly i hadn't <laughs> intended to do that obviously but that's now research yeah you know, right so that's going to go into my work at some point it'll come back out in some way maybe it won't maybe it will mm. you know photography i take tons i mean i i take i don't know how many probably a hundred photos a day sometimes but you know i have tens of thousands of photos wow. of them various platforms and half of now more than half of those are cities buildings spaces public space you know like technologies like the stuff that is my job um but then i'm also just enjoying that you know and it's just like you know that's what i love being in and thinking about so i'm it's a bit like a fish you know like you're mm-hmm. in the water yeah and i don't know what the water is because <laughs> <laughs> i'm in it all the time 
And so like for me, my work and my hobbies, when it comes to that stuff, yeah. I don't know, sometimes is this hobby, is this work, is this, and I never think that thought, it's mm. just like I'm in it all the time without thinking about it, like the fish in the water. Wow. Very interesting and very inspiring actually. And now we have the, the last two questions mm-hmm. in this episode. First one is going to be, you give us, the listeners, three takeaway messages. Mm-hmm. Tricky. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, interesting. This won't be very profound because it's just off the top of my head. But I would say, go outside wherever you are, you know, whether you're at your work or at home or school or whatever. And, and look at that immediate neighborhood around you really carefully. You know, just, that's, that's my practice, that careful observation and understanding. And then, of course, talking and research, but historical research and so on. But that immediate one minute, don't go too far, but just you know, the neighborhood around you, what's happening on the street there, and start thinking about that. Like, how did that get to where it is? So that would be my first takeaway message, just to start with the context that you're in and that you know. Uh, you are the expert in that place. So that's my first message. There's a practice that goes along with that. And the second one would be um, that can all change. So, and that's a, that's a loaded one because you don't, you know, we've changed things many times in the past for the worst. So I'm not saying that's always a good thing, of course. But any assumptions that one has there about things that are stuck and static, you know, they are all just the accidents of decisions. You know, I'd say design decisions, actually, even though they're not sometimes thought about as design decisions, but decisions that someone's made. And if there are a decision that someone's made, then it can be unmade. Mm. You, know, you can change that. Anything. It could be the law, which people think is untouchable. That's just a piece of paper you know, with some agreed writing on it, right? So completely malleable in that sense. It could be a freeway. You might think, well, that's really hard to change, and it's that well, it is, absolutely, but it can change. You know, we're seeing freeways being taken down in the US now. I think it's amazing. So that would be my second thing. So in that context, from the first one, your immediate neighborhood, things around you, what you understand, and looking at how it got to be that way. Then the second message might be that all of those things are movable, right? Or they're kind of changeable in some way. So then you start. That's my second message, and then the third one is then start thinking about how you would make that. So if, if in the second one you start thinking about, well, okay, yes, I would prefer it without that freeway there. Yeah. <laughs> or I would like, you know, 100 times more trees here or um, a cafe that sold amazing Ethiopian street food there would be great. Mm. So then the third thing, so how is that going to happen? And that's more of a how question. Like how would you begin to unpick that? And that will be hard for people because... When you look at a freeway, unless you're a freeway engineer or a politician, you just think, well, that's just beyond me, that's untouchable. Yeah. But again, all of those things can change, mm-hmm. and there will be a course of action that's possible there. And it might be a very small thing. It might be, you know, doing a park look. It might be organizing a protest. It might yeah. be writing a story about it. I don't know. But all of those things set a ball in motion, like a snowball that can roll down a hill and get bigger as it goes. And so mm. I'd say um, that would be maybe like a, you know, Message 3.1 there would be like, find the small thing. So when we're thinking about the how, third thing, think about what's the small thing that you could start with that you can set off in that direction. Because maybe this could be also also like, because the last question in the episode is you asking us the listeners a question. Mm. 
Would you like to ask that question or you have a new question for us? Yeah, I mean, those three takeaway messages, I guess, have been quite questiony. <laughs> <laughs> the first one to, you know, look at the world around you and yeah. see how it got there. The second one to start looking at that, well, realizing that everything can change. And mm. the third one is the how of it. How would you set something going that if you have a preferred or an imagined outcome that you think might be more fruitful, how would you set it going? So, yeah, my, my, my question back to you would be like an assemblage of those Um What's the kind of imagined future world or the, the possibility within that that you would start thinking about and then start thinking carefully, well, what, so what is it about that, that that is appealing to you? Is it, again, the great street food mm. or is it tons of trees or is it no freeway because the air will be cleaner or be quieter or is it um, this place is socially just and people can pursue what they want to pursue and, you know, make the best of their mm. capabilities because it's socially just you know it could be any one of those outcomes and all i'm saying is that you know, those all of those things play out in those small decisions about our immediate environment and the way that that happens so my question is yeah so it would be to start imagining the possibility of that and then the question is so you know what is it within there that mm. is really driving you what's motivating it what's what is that appeal about there often we might draw a picture of a future city or something There's so many things going on there right? so, so what is it that's Mm. really driving you what do you really passionately care about within that because that'll be the thing yeah that you can then make the action with probably really good question it's a hard one yeah yeah it's very hard <laughs> well thank you so much again for coming i'm really happy to talk to you and hopefully talk to you more in the future about yeah interesting themes as well yeah no super happy to thanks for having me it's really i think this podcast is fantastic and it's so good that you do it So I'm delighted to be on here and honored as a guest. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.